0: Thank you for joining Talks News on this Theory Thursday. Now, I might sound a little weird because I bit my lip pretty bad today, but it is what it is, bitch. Oh, yeah. So, as promised, Chapter 2 of Homo Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. Chapter 2, The Tree of Knowledge. And this actually gets into a lot of stuff that we talk about here on this podcast pretty often. Mainly when discussing narratives and the like like that. So, as the music slowly fades out, we begin. If you're seeing this video on YouTube, here's the book, Sapiens. Brief history of humankind. I did not get the first episode covering chapter one on YouTube, so that's on the podcast. Use your ears, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's just get into it. Let's just uh, let's just uh, not dip our toes in the pool, let's just dive right in. So, in the previous chapter, Sapiens had already populated East Africa 150,000 years ago, overran the rest of the planet, and drove the extinction of other human species about 70,000 years ago. Yuval adds that in the first recorded encounter between Sapiens and Neanderthals, Neanderthals won. In the intervening... Millennia, even though these archaic sapiens looked just like us and their brains were as big as ours, they did not enjoy any marked advantage over other human species. They did not produce particularly sophisticated tools and did not accomplish any other special feats. In fact, in the first recorded encounter between sapiens and and Neanderthals, Neanderthals won. About 100,000 years ago, some sapien groups migrated north to the Levant, which was Neanderthal territory, but failed to secure a firm footing. It might have been due to nasty natives, an inclement climate, or unfamiliar local parasites. Whatever the reason, the Sapiens eventually retreated, leaving the Neanderthals as masters of the Middle East. I find that pretty interesting. Now, teaching such an ancient Sapien language, Oh, no, teaching an ancient sapien English, persuading him of the truth of Christian dogma, or getting him to understand the theory of evolution, would probably have been hopeless undertakings. Conversely, we have had a very hard time learning his language and understanding his way of thinking. These archaic humans had far more cognitive limitations That was weird. All right, Uh, these archaic humans had far more cognitive limitations, such as learning, remembering and communicating. (sighs) So, they maintain that the people who drove the Neanderthals to extinction settled Australia and carved the Stadel Lion Man were as intelligent, creative and sensitive as we are. And it was about 45,000 years ago sapiens somehow crossed the open sea and landed in Australia. The appearance of new ways of thinking and communicating between 70,000 and 30,000 years ago constitutes the cognitive revolution. The period from 70,000 to 30,000 years ago witnessed the invention of boats, oil lamps, bows and arrows, and needles. The first objects... That can, be, uh, that can reliably be called art, date from this era, as does the first evidence for religion, commerce, and social stratification. It was not the first language. Every animal has some kind of language. Even instincts, such as bees and ants, know how to communicate in sophisticated ways, informing one another of the whereabouts of food. Neither was it the first vocal language. Many animals, including all ape and monkey species, have vocal languages. For example, green monkeys use calls of various kinds to communicate. Zoologists have identified one call that means, Careful, an eagle. A slightly different call warns, Careful, a lion. When researchers played a a recording of the first call to a group of monkeys, the monkeys stopped what they were doing and looked upwards in fear. When the same group heard a recording of the second call, the lion warning, they quickly scrambled up a tree. Sapiens can produce many more distinct sounds than green monkeys, but whales and elephants have equally impressive abilities. A parrot can say anything Albert Einstein could say, as well as mimicking the sounds of phones ringing, doors slamming, and sirens wailing. Whatever advantage Einstein had over a parrot, it wasn't vocal. What then is so special about our language? The most common answer is that our language is amazingly supple. We can then thereby ingest, store, and communicate a prodigious amount of information about the surrounding world. A green monkey can yell to its comrades, careful, a lion, but a modern human can tell her friends that this morning, near the bend in the river, she saw a lion tracking a herd of bison. She can then describe the exact location, including the different paths leading to the area. With this information, the members of her band can put their heads together and discuss whether they should approach the river, chase away the lion, and hunt the bison. So our ability to form complex sentences or sounds, you know, that form sentences, is what gave us a large advantage over the rest of the animal kingdom. That's what Yuval is pointing out here. Now, let's see here. The most, uh, We're moving on, we already got that. Yes, it is not enough for individual men and women to know the whereabouts of lions and bison. It's much more important for them to know who in their band hates whom, who is sleeping with whom, who is honest, and who is a cheat, which is important to keeping the social bonds of those bands. The new linguistic skills that modern sapiens acquired about 70 millennia ago enabled them to gossip for hours on end. Reliable information about who could be trusted meant that small bands could expand into larger bands and sapiens could develop tighter and more sophisticated sophisticated types of cooperation. The gossip theory might sound like a joke, but numerous studies support it. Even today, the vast majority of human communication, whether in the form of emails, phone calls, or newspaper columns, is gossip. It comes so naturally to us that it seems as if our language evolved for this very purpose. Do you think that history professors chat about the reasons for World War I when they meet for lunch? Or that nuclear physicists spend their coffee breaks at scientific conferences talking about quarks? Sometimes. But more often they gossip about the professor who caught her husband cheating, or the quarrel between the head of the department and the dean or the rumors that a colleague used his research funds to buy a Lexus. Gossip usually focuses on wrongdoings. Rumormongers are the original fourth estate, journalists who inform society about, and thus protect it, from cheaters and freeloaders. So most researchers believe our unprecedented accomplishments from technologies to, you know, like stone tools, even, or the use of fire, and also our ability to cooperate with each other, were the products of the sapiens cognitive revolution. And the most common believed causes of the cognitive revolution can either be attributed to accidental genetic mutations changed in the inner wiring of our brains, which is called in this book, there is a lion near the river theory, And the other common theory is the gossip theory, where we just spent all night talking to each other. Yet the truly unique feature of our language is not its ability to transmit information about men and lions. Rather, it's the ability to transmit information about things that do not exist at all. As far as we know, only sapiens can talk about entire kinds of entities that they have never seen, touched, or smelled. This begins with legends, myths, gods, and religions appearing the first time alongside the Cognitive Revolution. Many animals and human species could previously say, Careful! A lion! Thanks to the Cognitive Revolution, Homo sapiens acquired the ability to say, The lion is the guardian spirit of our tribe. You can never convince a monkey to give you a banana by promising him limitless bananas after death in monkey heaven, but why is it important? The ability to speak about fictions is the most unique feature sapiens have in our language but fiction has enabled us not merely to imagine things but to do so collectively we can weave common myths such as the bili- uh, the biblical creation story the dreamtime myths of aboriginal australians and the national myths of modern states such myths give sapiens the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Ants and bees can also work together in huge numbers, but they do so in a very rigid manner and only with close relatives. Wolves and chimpanzees cooperate far more flexibly than ants, but they can do so only with small numbers of other individuals that they know intimately. Sapiens can cooperate in extremely flexible ways with countless numbers of strangers. That's why sapiens rule the world, whereas ants eat our leftovers and chimps are locked up in zoos and research laboratories ooh this is really acting up the cut on my on my lip let me clean that up ah and the show goes on we move on to the legend of Peugeot which i'm not sure if i said that correctly it's a french company so i really hope i got that right i am Uh, quite eloquent with my knowledge of other foreign languages anyways our chimpanzee cousins usually live in small troops of several dozen individuals they form close friendships hunt together and fight shoulder to shoulder against baboons cheetahs and enemy chimpanzees their social structure tends to be hierarchical the dominant member who is almost always a male is termed the alpha male Other males and females exhibit their submission to the alpha male by bowing before him while making grunting sounds, not unlike human subjects kowtowing before a king. The alpha male strives to maintain social harmony within his troop. When two individuals fight, he will intervene and stop the violence. Less benevolently, he might monopolize particularly coveted foods and prevent lower-ranking males from mating with the females. When two males are contesting the alpha position they usually do so by forming extensive coalitions of supporters both male and female from within the group ties between coalition members are based on intimate daily contact hugging touching kissing grooming and mutual favors just as human politicians on election campaigns go around shaking hands and kissing babies so aspirants to the top position in a chimpanzee group spend much time hugging, back-slapping, and kissing baby chimps. The alpha male usually wins his position not because he is physically stronger, but because he leads a large and stable coalition. These coalitions play a central part not only during overt struggles for the alpha position, but in almost all day-to-day activities. Members of a coalition spend more time together, share food, and help one another in times of trouble. Under natural conditions, a typical chimpanzee group consists of about 20 to 50 individuals. As the number of chimpanzees in a troop increases, the social order destabilizes, eventually leading to a rupture and the formation of a new troop by some of the animals. So there are clear limits to the size of groups that can be formed and maintained. In order to function, all members of a group must know each other intimately and this was brought with a citation that i felt was important for people to find further research here i highlighted it it comes from franz de wall and his writings of chimpanzee politics power and sex among apes it was uh, published by the john johns hopkins university press in 2000 And then there's several other books that he has released, and I will read a couple of them. These are from Franz De Waal. Our Inner Ape, a leading primatologist, explains why we are who we are. And it also comes from Michael L. Wilson and Richard W. Ringham, Intergroup Relations in Chimpanzees. There's several more citations here, but there's a little little surface digging there if you want to dig a little more. So, as he said earlier, as the number of troops increasing within a chimpanzee's band or uh, group, um, that usually leads to rupture and formation of a new troop by some of the animals who belong to that original troop. Um, So... To highlight here, only in a handful of cases have zoologists observed groups larger than a hundred. Separate groups seldom cooperate and tend to compete for territory and food. Researchers have even documented prolonged warfare between groups, and in even one case of genocidal activity, in which one troop systematically slaughtered most members of another band, and that comes straight from that Franz de Waal writing of chimpanzee politics. Similar patterns probably dominated the social lives of early humans, including archaic homo sapiens. Humans, like chimps, have social instincts that enabled our ancestors to form friendships and hierarchies and to hunt or fight together. However, like the social instincts of chimps, those of humans were adapted only for small, intimate groups. When the group grew too large, its social order destabilized and the band split. Even if a particularly fertile valley could feed 500 archaic sapiens, there was no way that so many strangers could live together." In the wake of the cognitive revolution, gossip helped us form larger and more stable bands. You know, being able to speak About who to trust, who not to trust, who does what, all of those things. Groups, or gossip within groups, still has its limitations. Below the threshold, communities, businesses, social networks, and military units can maintain themselves based mainly on intimate acquaintance and rumor-mongering. But once the threshold of 150 individuals is crossed, things no longer work that way. You cannot run a division with thousands of soldiers the same way you run a platoon. Successful family businesses usually face a crisis when they grow larger and hire more personnel. If they cannot reinvent themselves, they go bust. How did Homo sapiens manage to cross this critical threshold, eventually founding cities comprising tens of thousands of inhabitants and empires ruling hundreds of millions? The secret was probably the appearance of fiction. Large numbers of strangers can cooperate successfully by believing in common myths. So a couple of examples of these large-scale human cooperations are modern states, medieval churches, ancient cities, and archaic tribes. Churches are rooted in common religious myths. Two Catholics who have never met can nevertheless go together on crusade or pool funds to build a hospital because they both believe that God was incarnated in human flesh and allowed himself to be crucified to redeem our sins. States are rooted in common national myths. Two Serbs who have never met might risk their lives to save one another because both believe in the existence of the Serbian nation, the Serbian homeland, and the Serbian flag. Judicial systems are rooted in common legal myths. Two lawyers who have never met can nevertheless combine efforts to defend a complete stranger because they both believe in the existence of laws, justice, human rights, and the money paid out in fees. Now, these large-scale human cooperation, myths, such as modern states, medieval churches, ancient cities, and archaic tribes, are all rooted in those common myths that only exist in those people's collective imaginations. That's what he's really trying to pound in here. Um, This network of stories, known in academic circles, are often referred to as fictions, social constructs, or imagined realities. So, there are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. Take, for example, the world of business corporations. Modern business people and lawyers are, in fact, powerful sorcerers. The principal difference between them and tribal shamans is that modern lawyers tell far stranger tales. The legend of Peugeot offers us a good example. So, I believe. Icon. That's still alive. All right. So I will have to read several paragraphs from Homo sapiens to give you the example of Pujol, and that will further our understanding later down the line of the chapter. So it reads. An icon that somewhat resembles the Stadel lion, man appears today on cars, trucks, and motorcycles from Paris to Sydney. It's the hood ornament that adorns vehicles made by Peugeot, one of the oldest and largest of Europe's car makers. Peugeot began as a small family business in the village of, uh, pardon my French, Valentin, Va- Valentigny. Yeah, Valentigny, just 200 miles from the Stadel cave. Today the company employs about 200,000 people worldwide, most of whom are complete strangers to each other. These strangers cooperate so effectively that in 2008, Peugeot produced more than 1.5 million automobiles, earning revenues of about 55 billion euros. In what sense can we say that Peugeot SA, the company's official name, exists? There are many Peugeot vehicles, but these are obviously not the company. Even if every Peugeot in the world were simultaneously junked and sold for scrap metal, Peugeot S.A. would not disappear. It would continue to manufacture new cars and issue its annual report. The company owns factories, machinery, and showrooms, and employees, and employs mechanics, accountants, and secretaries. But all these together do not comprise Peugeot. A disaster might kill every single one of Peugeot's employees and go on to destroy all of its assembly lines and executive offices. Even then, the company could borrow money, hire new employees, build new factories, and buy new machinery. Peugeot has, managed, uh, has managers and shareholders, but neither do they constitute the company. All the managers could be dismissed and all its shares sold, but the company itself would remain intact. It doesn't mean that Peugeot SA is invulnerable or immortal. If a judge were to mandate the dissolution of the company, its factories would remain standing and its workers, accountants, managers, and shareholders would continue to live, but Peugeot SA would immediately vanish. In short, Peugeot SA seems to have no essential connection to the physical world. So does it really exist? Peugeot is a figment of our collective imagination. Lawyers call this a legal fiction. It can't be pointed at, it is not a physical object, but it exists as a legal entity. Just like you or me, it is bound by the laws of the countries in which it operates. It can open a bank account and own property, It pays taxes and it can be sued and even prosecuted separately from any of the people who own or work for it. Peugeot belongs to a particular genre of legal fictions called limited liability companies. The idea behind such companies is among humanity's most ingenious inventions. Homo sapiens lived for untold millennia without them. During most of recorded history, property could be owned only by flesh-and-blood humans, the kind that stood on two legs and had big brains. If in 13th century, France, Jean set up a wagon manufacturing workshop, he himself was the business. If a wagon he'd made broke down a week after purchase, the disgruntled buyer would have sued Jean personally. If Jean had borrowed a 1,000 gold coins to set up his workshop and the business failed, he he would have had to repay the loan by selling his property, his house, his cow, his land. He might even have had to sell his children into servitude. If he couldn't cover the debt, he could be thrown in prison by the state or enslaved by his creditors. He was fully liable without limit for all obligations incurred by his workshop. If you had lived back then, you probably would have thought twice before you opened an enterprise of your own. And indeed, this legal situation discouraged entrepreneurship. People were afraid to start new businesses and take economic risks. It hardly seemed worth taking the chance that their families could end up utterly destitute. This is why people began collectively to imagine the existence of limited liability companies. Such companies were legally independent of the people who set them up or invested money in them, or managed them. Over the last few centuries, such companies have become the main players in the economic arena, and we have grown so used to them that we forget they exist only in our imagination. In the US, the technical term for a limited liability company is a corporation, which is ironic because the term derives from corpus, which means body in Latin, the one thing these corporations lack. despite They're having no real bodies. The American legal system treats corporations as legal persons, as if they were flesh and blood human beings." And that goes back to um, the uh, Supreme Court ruling on the 13th Amendment that granted corporations said personhood, giving them the same rights as uh, living, breathing, heart-beating citizens. So, Armand Peugeot died in 1915, Peugeot the company is still alive and well. So ever since the Cognitive Revolution, sapiens have been living in a dual reality. One that is objective, featuring rivers, trees, and lions, and one that is imagined, one of gods, nations, and corporations. Telling effective stories is not easy. The difficulty lies not in telling the story, but in convincing everyone else to believe it. Much of history revolves around this question. How does one convince millions of people to believe particular stories about gods or nations or limited liability companies? Yet when it succeeds, it gives sapiens immense power because it enables millions of strangers to cooperate and work towards common goals. Just try to imagine how difficult it would have been to create states or churches or legal systems if we could speak only about things that really exist, such as rivers, trees, and lions. Over the years, people have woven an incredibly complex network of stories. Within this network, fictions such as Peugeot not only exist, but also accumulate mass uh, accumulate immense power as time went by these imagined realities became ever more powerful unlike lying an imagined reality is something that everyone believes in and as long as this communal belief persists the imagined reality exerts force in the world no one was lying when in two thousand. 11 the u.n demanded that the libyan government respect the human rights of its citizens even though the u.n libya and human rights are all figments of our fertile imaginations as time went by the imagined realities became ever more powerful so that today the the, the very survival of rivers trees and lions depends on the grace of imagined entities such as the united states and google So we have come to the next segment of this chapter, section 3, Bypassing the Genome. The ability to create an imagined reality out of words enabled large numbers of strangers to cooperate effectively, but it also did something more. Since large-scale human cooperation is based on myths by telling different stories, under the right circumstances, myths can change rapidly or even change human behavior rapidly. In 1789, the French population switched almost overnight from believing in the myth of the divine right of kings to believing in the myth of the sovereignty of the people. This opened a fast lane of cultural evolution, bypassing the traffic jams of genetic revolution. Since the cognitive revolution, sapiens have been able to revise its behavior rapidly in accordance with changing needs. The behavior of other social animals is determined to a large extent by their genes. Behavior is also influenced by environmental factors and individual quirks. Animals of the same species will tend to behave in a similar way. Significant changes in social behavior can't occur in general, not without genetic mutations. So, for a couple of examples. Female common chimpanzees cannot take lessons from their bonobo relatives and stage a feminist revolution. Male chimps cannot gather in a constitutional assembly to abolish the office of alpha male and declare that from here on out all chimps are to be treated as equals. Such dramatic changes in behavior would occur only if something changed in the chimpanzee's DNA. For further examples on this, common chimpanzees have a genetic tendency to live in hierarchical groups headed by an alpha male, designed in their genetics, while bonobos usually live in more egalitarian groups dominated by female alliances. For similar reasons, archaic humans did not initiate any revolutions. As far as we can tell, new technologies and settlement of alien habitats resulted from genetic mutations and environmental pressures more than cultural initiatives. About 2 million years ago, genetic mutations resulted in the appearance of a new human species called Homo erectus. Its emergence was accompanied by the development of a new stone tool technology now recognized as a defining feature of the species. As long as Homo erectus did not undergo further genetic alterations, its stone tools remained roughly the same for close to 2 million years. In contrast to genetic mutations, humans have been able to change their behavior quickly, transmitting new behaviors to future generations without genetic or environmental change. So, as a prime example, consider the repeated appearance of childless elites, such as the Catholic priesthood, Buddhist monastic. Uh, mo- monastic orders and Chinese eunuch bureaucracies. The existence of such elites goes against the most fundamental principles of natural selection, since these dominant members of society willingly give up procreation. In- On the other hand, chimpanzee alpha males use their power to have sex with as many females as possible, while the Catholic alpha male abstains completely. This abstinence does not result from unique environmental conditions such as a severe lack of food or want of potential mates, nor is it the result of some quirky genetic mutation. The Catholic Church has survived for centuries not by passing on a celibacy gene from one pope to the next, but by passing on the stories of the New Testament and of Catholic canon law. While most archaic human behavior remained fixed, sapiens could transform their social structures, their interpersonal relationships, economic activities, and other behaviors within a decade or two. Yuval believes this is the key to our success. Consider a resident of Berlin, born in 1900, and living to the ripe age of 100. She spent her childhood, and I'm sorry if I get this wrong, I am not European, in the Hohenzollern, Uh, Hohenzollern, yeah, that's German as heck. She spent her childhood in the Hohenzollern Empire of Wilhelm II, her adult years in the Weimar Republic, the Nazi Third Reich, and communist East Germany. And she died a citizen of a democratic and reunified Germany. She had managed to be part of five very different socio political systems, though her DNA remained exactly the same. In a one-on-one brawl, a Neanderthal would probably have beaten a sapien. But in a conflict of hundreds, Neanderthals wouldn't stand a chance. Neanderthals could share information about the whereabouts of lions, but they probably could not tell and revise stories about tribal spirits. Without an ability to compose fictions, Neanderthals were unable to cooperate effectively in large numbers, nor could they adapt their social behavior to rapidly changing challenges. Although we can't get inside the mind of a Neanderthal, we have indirect evidence of the limits to their cognition compared with the sapien rivals. Archaeologists excavating... 30,000-year-old Sapien sites in the European heartland occasionally find their seashells from the Mediterranean and Atlantic coasts. In all likelihood, these shells got to the continental interior through long-distance trade between different Sapiens bands. Neanderthal sites lack any evidence of such trade. Each group manufactured its own tools from local materials. Another example comes from the South Pacific. Sapien's bands that lived on the island of New Ireland, north of New Guinea, used a volcanic glass called obsidian to manufacture particularly strong and sharp tools. New Ireland, however, has no natural deposits of obsidian. Laboratory tests revealed that the obsidian they used was brought from deposits on New Britain, an island 250 miles away. Some of the inhabitants of these islands must have been skilled navigators who traded from island to island over long distances. No other animal than sapiens engages in trade, and the trade networks we do have detailed evidence are uh, detailed evidence of are all based on fictions. In such fictions, the trade of resources gives reason that information could have been traded, lending to a knowledge network advantage sapiens had over Neanderthals. The differences between Neanderthal and sapiens hunting... Oh, no, before we get into that, sorry, my notes are a a little off, but just keep in mind here that our fictions to trade resources may lend to the idea that we could also trade information. But here's the thing. Trade cannot exist without trust, and it is very difficult to trust strangers. The global trade network of today is based on our trust in such fictional entities as the dollar, the Federal Reserve Bank, and the totemic trademarks of corporations. When two strangers in a tribal society want to trade, they will often establish trust by appealing to a common god, mythical ancestor, or totem animal. And that's where we get to the difference, the differences between Neanderthal, Sapien, Neanderthal and Sapien's hunting techniques, which Yuval says illustrates this point further. Evidence shows that Neanderthals usually hunted alone or in small groups. Sapiens, on the other hand, developed techniques that relied on cooperation between many dozens of individuals and even different bands. One particularly effective method was to surround an entire herd of animals, such as wild horses, then chase them into a narrow gorge where it was easy to slaughter them in mass. If all went according to plan, the bands could harvest tons of meat, fat, and animal skins in a single afternoon of collective effort, and either consume these riches in a giant potlatch, or dry smoke, or in arctic areas freeze them for later usage. Archaeologists have discovered sites where entire herds were butchered annually in such ways. We may presume that Neanderthals were not pleased to see their traditional hunting grounds turned into Sapien-controlled slaughterhouses. However, if violence broke out between the two species, Neanderthals were not much better off than wild horses. Fifty Neanderthals cooperating in traditional and static patterns were no match for 500 versatile and innovative Sapiens. And even if the Sapiens lost the first round, they could quickly invent new stratagems that would enable them to win the next time. So the rise of the power of fiction, historical narratives have been favored over biological theories to explain the development of Homo sapiens. And we will dive into that further in Section 4, History and Biology. The immense diversity of imagined realities that sapiens invented and the resulting diversity of behavior patterns are the main components of what we call cultures. Once cultures appeared, they never ceased to change and develop, and these unstoppable alterations are what we call history. The cognitive revolution is accordingly the point when history declared its independence from biology. Until the cognitive revolution, the doings of all human species belong to the realm of biology, or if you so prefer, prehistory. But Yuval notes here that he tends to avoid the term prehistory because it wrongly implies that even before the cognitive revolution, humans were in a category of their own. And boy, would we not to love to think ourselves that way. So, to understand the rise of of Christianity or the French Revolution, it is not enough to comprehend the interaction of genes, hormones, and organisms. It is necessary to take into account the interaction of ideas, images, and fantasies as well. Our societies are built from the same building blocks as Neanderthals or chimpanzee societies. And the more we examine these building blocks, sensations, emotions, family ties, the less difference we find between us and other apes. However, Yuval does note the existence of human cultures does not exempt us from the laws of biology. We are still animals, after all. So to wrap it up here, we've got about two pages left, and I will just read them. So, if you got a copy of this, follow along. If you don't, listen up. It is, however, a mistake to look for the differences at the level of the individual or the family. One-on-one, even ten-on-ten, we are embarrassingly similar to chimpanzees. Significant differences begin to appear only when we cross the threshold of 150 individuals, and when we reach 1,000 to 2,000 individuals, the differences are astounding. If you tried to bunch together thousands of chimpanzees into Tiananmen Square, Wall Street, the Vatican, or the headquarters of the United Nations, the result would be pandemonium. By contrast, sapiens regularly gather by the thousands in such places. Together, they create orderly patterns, such as trade networks, mass celebrations, and political institutions. These things we would never have been able to create by ourselves. We we need the collective imagination to do that. Um, The real difference between us and chimpanzees is the mythical glue that binds together large numbers of individuals, families, and groups. This glue has made us the masters of creation. Of course, we also needed other skills, such as the ability to make and use tools. Yet tool-making is of little consequence unless it is coupled with the ability to cooperate with many others. How is it that we now have intercontinental missiles with nuclear warheads, whereas 30,000 years ago we only had sticks with flint, with flint spearheads? Physio- uh, physi- f- <clears throat> Physiologically, boom, got it. Physiologically, there has been no significant improvement in our tool-making ca- capacity over the last 30,000 years. Albert Einstein was far less dexterous with his hands than was an ancient hunter-gatherer. However, our capacity to cooperate with large numbers of strangers has improved dramatically. The ancient flint spearhead was manufactured in minutes by a single person, who relied on the advice and help of a few intimate friends. The production of a modern nuclear warhead requires the cooperation of millions of strangers all over the world, from the workers who mine the uranium ore in the depths of the earth, to theoretical physicists who write long mathematical formulas to describe the interactions of some atomic particles. To summarize the relationship between biology and history after the cognitive revolution, we have A. Biology sets the basic parameters for the behavior and capacities of Homo sapiens. The whole of history takes place within the bounds of this biological arena. However, this arena is extraordinarily large, allowing sapiens to play an astounding variety of games thanks to their ability to invent fiction. Sapiens create more and more complex games with with each generation developing and elaborating them even further and then we have consequently in order to understand how sapiens behave we must describe the historical evolution of their actions referring only to our biological constraints would be like a radio sportscaster who attending the world cup football championships offers his listeners a detailed description of the playing field rather than an account of what the players are doing. What games did our Stone Age ancestors play in the arena of history? As far as we know, the people who carved the Stadel Lion Man some 30,000 years ago had the same physical, emotional, and intellectual abilities we have. What did they do when they woke up in the morning? What did they eat for breakfast and lunch? What were their societies like? Did they have monogamous relationships and nuclear families? Did they have ceremonies, moral codes, sports contests, and religious rituals? Did they fight wars? The next chapter takes a peek behind the curtain of the ages, examining what life was like in the millennia separating the cognitive revolution from the agricultural revolution. Cliffhanger. And that's where we're going to end it today. Now, the reason why I felt it was pretty important, that chapter itself, because it dives into the idea that we've formed most of our understanding of the world through imagined realities. And I find that interesting because most of the time on this podcast, we're usually um, analyzing the narratives, the myths, the stories the right wing tells each other, in order to progress their political agendas. And so I think the the understanding chapter two, the tree of knowledge, is a great way to understand that unfortunately human understanding of reality, most of it's made up. And that shouldn't make people feel hopeless. I, I believe that it should actually empower most of us to create and grow new myths that promote what we want to see out of the world. And what I would like to see is more empathy, more compassion. A bit more leftism, but that's just me. Um, Like, true leftism, but hey, this, this is Theory Thursday, not regular talks news, but... I think coming to terms with the idea that we made up the Constitution, that there were no God-given rights, but that they are something that we made up, and it is up to us to uphold, empowers us, and allows us to create the world around us. And I feel that was a very interesting chapter, and it's only chapter two. I'm not 100% sure of all the chapters. Let's see here. See, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 22 chapters. And that really only furthers the, it, it really only digs deeper into the surface that we just scratched. So um, I'm going to try and get better at delivering these, but that is it for this Uh. Theory Thursday, come back for the next chapter, chapter three, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve. I do have uh, the sequel to this book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, and um, his 21 lessons for the 21st century. I think all important, especially with the tumultuous times of misunderstanding, political divide, and complete disconnect from where we originally came from. Um, I'm, I'm feeling that these are uh, perfect reads for right now. And after getting through those, I wanna do Abdullah Asalan's um, manifesto for a democratic civilization. And then after that, we have The Thick Book of Ecology of Freedom. So, uh, by Murray Bookchin. So, expect uh, Theory Thursday to continue on. Um, basically more dry and boring than the usual podcast itself but here's the thing is that i think um, knowledge is more important than pointing at the right wing and telling them where they're fucking up but that's just my opinion and that is going to be it um catch me i think tomorrow is going to be a regular episode don't know what the segments are yet but i'm sure i'll figure it out oh i'm sure i'm with i'm sh- sure i will um but until then Uh, stay sapien thanks for joining we'll see you next time